The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, stop practicing your wax-on, wax-off move and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 573 with guest James Kovacs, recorded live Saturday, June 26, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... The man who says, the Karate Kid just isn't the same without Arnold from Happy Days, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. Rich will be here in just a minute. Hey, we're going to play you another one of our great shows from the .NET Rocks Live Weekend. And this happened uh, last weekend. Richard and I uh, were in the studio and we recorded about 35 shows during the course of the weekend, and we were broadcasting live. We didn't have that many listeners, but it was the first time we did it, and uh, maybe next time you will join us. We hope you will. Uh, let's get right into Better Know Framework. So today's class is in system.windows.application, and it's the get remote stream method. And that returns a resource stream for a site of origin data file that's located at a specific URI. So what this does, it lets you go from URI to stream resource info. That's what it returns. And a stream resource info stores information for a stream resource used in WPF and Silverlight, such as images, right? And from that stream resource info, if you dig down into it, there's uh, there's a content type and a stream object. So there you go. That's how you can go from resource to stream in WPF system.windows.application.getRemoteStream. As I said, Richard isn't here for the introduction, but we're just going to roll the recording that we made previously on June 26th, 2010, during the .NET Rocks Live weekend. James Kovacs is our guest. Welcome back to the .NET Rocks Live Weekend. This is Carl and Richard here. We're broadcasting for three days. I don't know what we were thinking, Richard. I think we're crazy. I think we're crazy, too. We're talking with James Kovacs this hour. Hi, James. 
Hey, Carl and Richard. How are you doing? Doing well, my friend. I think you guys are crazy. Three days straight. Yeah, we are crazy. But it's proving to be uh, rewarding so far. And we get a meal break here and there, so there yeah. is there is breathing room. <laughs> you know, if there's a five minutes between each guest and an hour for lunch, what more do you want? Yeah, time to wolf down some food and get right back to it. Yeah, yeah. We're not going very far, that's for sure, but uh, <laughs> we're getting it done. Gee, I can't remember the last time we saw you in person. I think it might have been at uh, DevTeach? Yes, I believe it was. Yeah. And uh, had a good time there. So what have you been thinking about these days? What have you been talking about or, or coding about? Oh, uh, lately, Saki has been heating up. That's a no pun intended. tool. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like hot Saki, too, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Uh, so, so Saki is a PowerShell build tool that I wrote a while ago, and it's gradually been evolving. It's uh, acquired a, a fairly good-sized user base now. A lot of people, if people are moving away from uh, XML-based build scripts, they're generally moving either to Saki or Rake. And now, how do you spell Rake Saki? Being the Rake pool. Uh, P-S-A-K-E. Okay. P-S? P-S, yeah. P-S PowerShell? PowerShell Make is what it is. Ah. Uh, so it gives you, what it does is it, uh, PowerShell is a, a really great language for scripting your builds. The one thing that it really does lack is the ability to manage dependencies. Things like, I always want to make sure my directories are clean before I do the compile. I always want to make sure my code is compiled before I run the tests. Mm -hmm. The standard, I, I want to make sure all the tests are run before I actually deploy to my testing environment, those types of things. So a lot of times you'll have dependencies between all your all of your different tasks. And this is what MS Build does and Nant and all the other build engines do. Uh, PowerShell is a great way for scripting out the actions to do. Just It doesn't have a way of managing the ordering of the tasks, and that's what Saki provides over top of it. Uh, so people have been having a really great time uh, writing very straightforward build scripts uh, and dramatically just reducing the XML headache of writing uh, writing builds. Remember when we thought XML was human-readable? Yeah, I know. <laughs> Remember those Everybody days? Thought was, it's a great idea for a machine-parsable format uh, that can be human. It's human-debuggable. I would but agree I with that. You know, you know, maybe I said something unfair there. It is readable. It's writing it that's horrible. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, and that's actually one thing I was disappointed with XAML is the fact that they did lean so much on the tooling side of things, make it easy for the tooling but hard for the developer. Yeah, yeah. Like WPF, brilliant story, but it's kind of painful to hack out the XAML at times. Kind of. But, yeah. you know, by that same token... If you ever went and looked at the WinForms code underlying that, it sucked for human readability too. But we never looked oh, at we it. We never looked at it. So if yeah. we could actually get to the point where WPF was working purely in a designer, we wouldn't care how ugly the XAML was. Um, there's some things, I don't know about you, James, but there's some things that are just easier to do in XAML than they are in a designer just by the nature of the design. Especially oh, absolutely. when you have... Uh, controls embedded inside controls, that's when it becomes really difficult to even to select which control you want to work on graphically because, you know, you don't, you move the mouse one pixel and you're on a different control. Oh, completely. And the other thing I find about XAML is that when you're working with the XAML, 
90% of layout problems in XAML can be solved by removing code. The vast majority, what I found is that both Cider, the XAML designer inside of Visual Studio, as well as Blend, tend to put in a lot of extra XAML to get it pixel perfect, but then it causes layout problems. Hmm. For instance, putting in exact widths and heights and a lot of that stuff, if you just put in the right uh, containing elements, like stack panels versus stock panels versus the other different containers in XAML, you get the proper layout. It re relayouts, lays out properly. Um, and yeah, I'm doing a lot of WPF and XAML on my current project. And when we've had layout problems, I literally go in, I remove all of, a lot of extra attributes that are more often than not causing problems. Like margin? Uh, margin is a common problem. Um, absolute widths are often a problem. Uh, having okay. things just specifying the docking properly. Don't you need space sometimes between controls and you can't get around using margins? Um, at Maybe it's just using it at a pixel level is what you're opposed to rather than a percentage level or a scale level? Well, when what I've seen is margins for space around an element is an excellent idea. Margins for specifying position. Uh, the position is awful. Mm. So I've, I've seen it where you're trying to push it a certain distance over from another element and the designer will just put in an exact margin right. of like 50, yeah. 50 left margin. And then when you shrink it down, it starts popping around and yeah. doing strange things. You know, I've heard where, this discussion before. This is the discussion we had in 1997 about table layouts. Yeah, you're right. This is yeah. HTML problems recreated. Absolutely. Are we really? Are yeah. we back there again, just with a different set of tools? Yes, we yes. are. Yes, we are. I'm horrified. Uh, the cider, de the cider designer in Visual Studio is Visual Interdef. Oh no! I think <laughs> you supposed. I thought you were going to say front page and really hurt us. Oh man! It's front page, man. The front page is back. So, I mean, the interesting thing about this is we know there's solutions to these things, right? Do we do we get to a style sheet approach with XAML at some point? Here? Are we going to have an elastic control oh, for XAML? <laughs> I would, I would love something akin to CSS in XAML. Well, yeah, because when you think about, we don't have it. I, I'm styling totally with in, you. in XAML, styling in WPF sucks. Yeah, it, and it's just, it is literally like you're doing it in HTML again. We're headed down this path. Well, wait a minute now. You have the ability to define styles at a at an abstract level and then apply those styles uh, in a cascading manner? Um, no, but the problem is, is they have to be explicitly specified. It's very hard to do it in a convention-based way. A very good example, so the current project I'm working on, uh, we had a bunch of text boxes. And so we specified styles on them. And we applied, so we said, okay, we didn't use style keys. We said we're applying it to a type of text box. Then we realized that, okay, these only allow numeric entries, so we created a derived type of text box that only allowed numbers to be put in. All of our styles broke, because although numeric text box was derived from text box, the style was applied to text box and not the numeric one. So styles don't cascade down inheritance hierarchies. Right. Which really hurts, because every time you realize, hey, I need a little bit of extra functionality, and now all of a sudden you have to repeat all your styles again. And there's rules around if you are creating a derived style, it has to be 
you need to have a key, a style key to base it off of. You can't base it off of a style on a type. So now you have to extract that common style into a separate keyed style that applies to both. It's, it's okay. just an, when you're trying to get convention-based WPF styling, it just it hurts. I haven't found a good way to do it. It's interesting. Yeah, the, this is an Nothing epiphany akin, for me. It, just, it doesn't have anything akin to CSS. C- CSS <laughs> is not perfect, but the ability to specify essentially conventions throughout and be able to heavily modify your layout. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I want my CSS Zen Garden for WPF. I want, exactly. here's a common set of functionality. Now give skin it. Go nuts. Show me the different ways that you can actually render this. Uh, that, to me, would be very exciting and, and get us closer to this sort of uh, paradigm. Because HTML seems to have worked itself out. Uh, mostly around, I think, jQuery has been the breakthrough. Between CSS and jQuery, yeah. suddenly web development doesn't suck? This is weird. Oh, completely. Actually, one of the more interesting experiments I saw when I was investigating this a few months ago is uh, jQuery, uh, oh, it was uh, around version 1.2, 1.3 of jQuery. John Resig actually extracted the CSS selector engine from jQuery and made it its own separate project huh. and called it Sparkle. Someone right. actually ported someone ported Sparkle over to C Sharp and allowed you to do jQuery style styling in WPF. And the main problem, he did it as a proof of concept spike and abandoned it. Oh no! So he's a, this is not production ready. This is just to prove that it can be done. I don't have time to follow this up on this, but there's still a lot of work left. Hmm. Someone else going to do it. No one picked it up. So I'd so, love to see someone pick that up. Why do you think Microsoft didn't implement it this way? Or why do you think they implemented it the way they did? Is there any possible reason for it? Because historically, they've been very much centered around the IDE, around drag and drop. So you think the people a, they got to do the styling had no experience with CSS? I, I don't know who they got to do the styling. Um, you, would, you would hope that they would have, would have looked at that. Um, it, it, it just seems like... WPF is very, very strong, has excellent layout capabilities. The things that you can create with it are phenomenal. The styling story is just really poor. Hmm. Unless you're coming from, if you're coming from a, a blend type of environment where you've got a designer who explicitly like clicks on every element, says, I want this style this way, I want this style this way. Right. That type of type, tight control, yes, WPF will do that. But the sort of, I want to use this style sheet on, on this application, it, it's pretty rough. Yeah, and the idea of reskinning an app in WPF seems impossible. I really haven't seen people do, successfully do it. No. Uh, actually, the one example I have seen, uh, and it was a fair amount of work, was uh, Oren's NHProf, where he did NHProf, ES, EFProf, L2S prof, mm-hmm. uh, his profiler series. Right. They've all got the same code base and they have a, a different look, basically a different color scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've got the same, they, they're just varying the style. Yeah, it's all the same controls. It's, it's literally, he's just changing colors. Yes. Yeah. That's... But I haven't seen anything akin to CSS Zen Garden done with WPF. No, and, it, and and I think that's really, it's almost like a milestone. A lot of ways, Zen Garden was, was about showing how much the separation of concerns really worked. Yes, and I think that will come to WPF. 
Uh, it's just going to take some time. Yeah, I just wish it would take less time. I don't want it. <laughs> I, I, I want it to work because I believe in it from the perspective of getting away from GDI 32, about, uh, uh-huh. C, about GPU acceleration being native to the operating system. This stuff just should all just work. Right. And uh, as long as it's as difficult as it is right now, uh, we're, adoption is going to tend to be tough and success stories are going to be exceptions. And, uh, I, I, you're hinting at this idea of you want to create a set of tools where people fall into the pit of success, where it's, exactly. you really got to work hard to screw up the UI. Mm-hmm. And that WPF's not there. You got to really work hard to make UI work at all. Yep. Speaking of GPU acceleration, uh, have you seen the latest IE9 preview? I have. I have not. I am surprised. It's an area where Microsoft has been pushed to do some innovation. I, I the latest IE9 preview, I believe it's preview three. Yep. Uh, has GPU acceleration for the canvas. Which for the canvas. For, for the canvas. So they've introduced a canvas, and you can do um, like iPad style page flip. Amazon has a demo like page flip book style animations hmm. in. HTML. Nice. And using HTML5, using JavaScript. So I'm wondering who's going to, if, if we get hardware acceleration into the browser, are we going to start needing some of these, the WPFs and the flashes and the silver lights as much? Well, that's a, that's a topic that we've been talking about here this morning with several people, you know, about HTML5. Is that really going to be the winner? I mean, it, we were talking with Rob Howard. He said, he wants to write an application once to be adopted on as many possible devices as possible. And, you know, with Silverlight, you're limited. With Flash, you're limited. With the iPhone, you're limited. You're only not limited with HTML, and HTML5 seems to be seems to be a good candidate for that place. But Richard's point is very well taken in that it's not there yet. No, it's not. But, but it's coming. That's the interesting thing. Uh, I saw I saw it earlier with uh, Google and Chrome experiments. Some of the phenomenal things that you can do using a really capable JavaScript engine, um, where you have ja- um, Chrome balls, like a I think it's about a five by five by five cube of Chrome balls, all interreflecting, expanding, contracting, forming a globe, and twirling around in space all programmed on the canvas using JavaScript. I saw that. That's amazing. Really phenomenal that this can be done in a dynamic language. Yeah. Um, Even simple things like uh, Google Gravity, where you go to the Google, what looks like the Google homepage, you try to click on it, and all of the elements fall as though gravity were applied to them and then clunk around on the bottom of the browser. Some of the fantastic things that you can do, like that was demonstrated with Chrome Experiments, in terms of having a fully capable JavaScript engine, mm-hmm. um, which now Firefox has implemented with TraceMonkey, uh, uh, IE has IE nine has a, and even IE eight have a much more capable JavaScript engines. Uh, like the IE nine JavaScript engine is performing comparable to what is available in Firefox and Chrome now. Uh, now Microsoft is actually upping the ante with showing what can be done if you have hardware-accelerated Canvas. Mm. So having all of these, because I've tried some of these demos, both in Chrome, uh, some of the IE demos, both in Chrome and in Firefox, and they're kind of slow, and mm. uh, they, they do. there's a lot of 
stuttering and tearing because the hardware acceleration isn't there. Microsoft leading the browser technology? What? I know. It's unbelievable. I've never been... It, it's been a long time since I've been a fan of a Microsoft browser, but like IE9 is really going to push the other browsers to do something creative because you will be able to have these very rich experiences in HTML5. It looks very compelling. What's interesting is that I would have thought that this was one of the strengths that Silverlight would have on the browser because Silverlight now is already moved towards the acceleration model. The fact that you're using XAML on the back end, that's all been built for GPU, that this could have been one of the claims to fame of why do I want to build apps in Silverlight with its cross-platform solution? Because it will utilize GPUs extremely well. So it's interesting to me that the IE team is sort of stealing that thunder by building IE to use GPU acceleration against HTML5. We have a comment a comment from Jeff. Every company seems to have a different idea or vision of what HTML5 means. Some companies are mislabeling complex CSS as HTML5. Many bits of incompatible parts of the standards implemented. And HTML5 is still fragmented. Mm. Um, there's there's been a wide disagreement over whether codecs are going to be in uh, required codecs are going to be in yeah. there or not, and there's codec patents and yada yada yada. It is problematic. Um, I wouldn't place any huge bet company win or lose bets on mm -hmm. HTML5 yet, but there are certain things that are being supported across the major browsers of the HTML5 spec that you can start depending on. But the, uh, for the most part, the HTML5 implementation everybody's been playing with is Apple's. As long as we're working on one engine, of course it's going to be consistent. Yep, yeah. and like a lot of the browsers now are WebKit. Right. So whether you're dealing Safari is based on WebKit, uh, Chrome is based on WebKit. Uh, I believe the iPhone browsers WebKit as and well. WebKit is a what? Is it is an implementation of browser goo? It, it's it's the browser and the browser rendering engine. Right. And they're all using the same one. Yeah. Yep. And it's made by Apple. Yep. Yep. It was WebKit was implemented and open sourced by Apple. Yeah. And that's what. That's what uh, Google picked up when it developed Chrome. So well, and and this is my point actually, is, effectively, you are using, it, you know, it might as well be Silverlight. You're using one engine. Hmm. Yes, though Firefox uses a different one. Uh, and and uh, Microsoft, of course, uses their own as well. So you do have some cross-compatibility across them all. Yeah, I mean, and this is where I think as we get deeper into this, we're going to start feeling the pain is when we find out what hmm. isn't compatible. Right. And what isn't performant. And and what's implemented here, not implemented there, and you know this is where this we, pain comes from. You thinking we're in for another full on browser war, Richard? Yeah, absolutely, without a doubt. Well, you're already seeing it, right? Well, yeah, but Why? it's it's still not as painful as it was. No, not yet. Yeah, that's what but, I'm saying. But you this think thing we're going to be there as these browsers race toward delivering HTML5 ahead of a ratified specification. Right, they're all going to try to be. They're all going to tweak it. Yeah, they're all, well. They're all going to try to beat the spec. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's been done historically. Yep. Uh, they're going to get onto onto the governing board, and and they all are, and that, they're trying to influence the spec in a way that is favorable towards their browser and is going to re reduce the amount of rework they have to do. Those jerks. The same old game. Well, let's see, and it's, yeah, it's the implementation game because it's running code, and you can see it in action. You know, that's the one you want. Yeah. Well, that's the presumption, but I think actually the committee tends to react negatively to that now because it has been used so many times. Hmm. 
Yeah, and I think that's where Silverlight can still be very strong because you do have because it is one engine uh, that runs across all of these different browsers and devices, and really one you team. Can Yes. You know, this is where the, and it's always laughs me to say something like this, but this is where the agility of Microsoft comes into play. They, you know, granted, you know, Scott Guthrie's Ninja Army has shipped four versions of Silverlight in less than three years. It's two and a half years, and they don't seem to be abating. So, uh, and it's been 10 years for a, a HTML specification update that still isn't finished. <laughs> Yes. And the whole misstart with XHTML. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we've been... been... It was a neat idea, and it just never got any legs, because it really didn't add anything to what you got with HTML4. No, all it it did was make stuff harder. Oh, all it did is lock you in. Yep. So what about jQuery? Are you a fan? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I was just at the Prairie DevCon, and uh, out in Regina, Saskatchewan. Oh, yeah? How many people came out to that? You know, that's the middle of nowhere. It it is, but we had people come in from all over, and we had speakers come in from uh, mostly Canada, but some from the U.S. as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Good turnout. I don't know the exact attendance numbers, but uh, well over 100. Like, I think it was around 200 or so. Cool. Um, Very active participation. Uh, I did uh, Dojo, so it sort of code along with me on uh, jQuery. And had a lot of fun just sort of demonstrating what can be done with jQuery, getting people started with it, uh, the ins and outs of it, and a huge fan. It makes web development fun again. Interesting. Mm. Well, and, and That's I, for sure. I've never really looked at jQuery that way. I've, made, I've looked at it more of a makes JavaScript not make me want to kill myself. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it replaced all that, all that searching online for the right JavaScript routine to do X, you know. Yeah, they're all the right JavaScript routines are now in a library called jQuery. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And you never have to even look at what they do. Well, the other brilliant thing is it has a rich plugin story, and jQuery's plugin story success is the same reason as Firefox's plugin success. And that's it, that it, writing a jQuery plugin is dead simple. If you have written any JavaScript, the number what you have to do to actually turn a little bit of JavaScript into a jQuery plugin is almost nothing. You just have to write some little boilerplate around it, and all of a sudden it becomes a jQuery plugin. So the ability to contribute back to the community is extremely easy. The bar is extremely low. Same thing with Firefox. Uh, writing a, a basic Firefox plugin is just a bit of JavaScript and HTML. That's it. So it's funny. Someone uh, once compared, like, why are there so many Firefox plugins and not that many IEA plugins? And to, they say, okay, intro to how to write an IE plugin. Here's a 300-page docx file. Ouch. And here's a one-page Firefox intro to plugins document. Take your pick. Yeah, right. The, and with, yeah. with the IE one, you have to oh, have to understand COM and uh, interop and all this other nonsense. And like Firefox, it's just, here, cruft up some JavaScript and have at it. Stuff that you already, as a web developer, already know. Uh, so jQuery is very much the same thing. Is plugin story is extremely easy uh, to take your pieces of code, componentize them, share them back to the community, share them across your projects. Uh, it makes for writing. It, it Java. The thing about jQuery 
is it allows you to once again separate your concerns. Does anybody focuses, vet those those submissions, those plug-in submissions? Uh, I believe they're voted on by the community. There's a up-down vote. Um, I'm not exactly sure as to the submission process. Yeah, that could get because most of the time when I I use like I'll, I'll go to the jQuery site and download a plugin like a Cookies plugin or a Tooltips plugin for something that I need to do. I'll see if it one already exists. If it doesn't, what I've done is I've just taken the code that I've written, bundled it up in a little plugin, and then shared it across my project. Because typically, what happens is you get the the newbie who just learns how to make a plugin and they make their Hello World plugin and yeah. they upload that to some repository somewhere which is littered with crappy plugins. Well, I'm at the plugins.jquery.com site, and I see 260 Ajax plugins, yeah, 417 animation plugins, hmm. 196 DOM plugins. Like, holy oh, yeah, cow, it's the, it's the Apple App Store, but there's no fart plugins to be found. <laughs> yet. 800 user interface plugins. So, I mean, the battle here is finding what you want. Yeah. This is a lot well, yes, of stuff. Often, and often what you'll, I found more productive is to go to your search engine of choice and search for jQuery plugin and what you want. And you can very quickly tell based on glancing through the, it's usually in a blog post and someone will link to it and say, oh, yes, and it's also up here up on the plugins.jquery.com that you can grab it from. So you don't start on the plugin site. You start searching first and see what the community endorsement is for a plugin before you go That's anywhere. right. And I believe that that's one area that the jQuery team has realized is not really working too well. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who want me to tell you about JustMock, Telerik's mocking tool. And unlike most mocking tools... JustMock can work with non-virtual methods, sealed classes, and static methods and classes, giving you complete control over your code. And of course, you get that great Telerik quality and support. You can read more and download the tool at Telerik.com slash JustMock. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. It's interesting the skill set we've developed to... Uh, cull through data effectively, right? I, and I, I know probably all of us on this call, at least, you could go and look at any one of these projects on this plugin site and figure out if it's alive or dead. Like, that's the first question. Is this plugin alive or not? Yes. You know, that, it's just like going to SourceForge or going to CodePlex. You find a project that sounds roughly like we're working on, and your question number one is, is this alive? Yep. You know, or am I looking at a body on a, on a web page, actually? But it's just an unusual skill, right? That that's what you need. Just like looking at using a search engine day. What's the first thing you look at for a search engine when you get back a re result? How old is this? You know, yeah. Is this relevant? And is it credible? Right? We question yeah, everything that, found, that comes in. The one thing I found very nice about jQuery plugins is because jQuery is so terse, the most plugins that I've ever used are a few dozen to at most 100, 200 lines of code. So even if it hasn't been used in two years, but it contains the essence of what you need, right? you can just take it, modify it. Like I did that with a tooltip plugin. It didn't have quite everything we needed. So I added the four lines of code over top of the 150 that were already there, and it did exactly what I wanted. And there's and something about the JavaScript that, you know, the, you can usually read your way through the lines. It takes you a little time, but well-crafted JavaScript tends to be very, very clever. 
And that's what may, takes so long to write. Is this, it, it, That's the old Mark Tain quote. Sorry this letter's so long, I didn't have time to write a short one. That's right. right. JavaScript is exactly like that. Good JavaScript is very brief, and bad JavaScript is very lengthy. Yes. And, it, yeah, it takes time to figure out that little, first little nugget, and that's what jQuery does. It, it makes it easier the big realization that John Resig made is that the vast majority of your time is spent finding the piece of the page that you want to modify. So he provided a very easy way using this Sparkle Selector engine to find that DOM element that you want or that set of elements. Um, and then to treat the other thing is treating it in a functional nature. A lot of like the MS Ajax library uh, and other JavaScript libraries tried to go the OO route right. with JavaScript, which is the wrong way to go. JavaScript is fundamentally a functional language. That's the way it wants to think. Yeah. If you think about JavaScript in a functional language, if you think of it like SQL, of all things, yeah. what, Java, what jQuery is doing is it's actually returning you sets, sets of elements. So query it like you would query SQL and then apply an action to that set. You can either increase the set, reduce the set, like restrict it, using an additional where clause, then you apply an action on it, do some other stuff to it. Okay, if you click on any ahref, then do this other thing. Uh, it, it, that's what makes it so terse, is you treat it in a very functional nature. Think about your page in terms of sets of things that you want to change, and all of a sudden, it just falls out. I want to talk uh, a little functional, if you want. We, you got you gave me a nice seg there because I do see JavaScript as very much a functional language. And when folks talk to me about well, functional is way too hard, it's like if you can write SQL, you're thinking functionally already. Right. Now start yeah. thinking, you know, broader than that. Are you playing with F Sharp much? You know, where are you getting your functional fix? I'm actually looking at F Sharp. Oh yeah, um, as well as as JavaScript as well. Uh, like I found that doing a bit of Jav- doing quite a bit of JavaScript and just dabbling in F-sharp has changed the way I write my C-sharp. It's gone huh. trying to write it in much more functional nature, much more declarative nature. Uh, very minimal, play- like just trying to hello world type applications. Right. Like looking at um, uh, Dustin Campbell, who's now with Microsoft mm-hmm. on the languages team, uh, did a series on learning F-sharp through Project Euler. So Project Euler is a bunch of little toy map problems like find the sum of all primes under a thousand type of thing. Uh, but because they're math problems, they very much suit a functional language. So just trying these things out with F sharp and sort of learning how to manipulate lists and sequences and how to think about things in a functional nature. And it's, you can see immediately how to solve the problem with C sharp. And I honestly stumble with F sharp. Which is a great, it, and is, is it project Euler or is it project Euler? I think I got, however you want to, it's I think Euler. I got some, it's pronounced Euler, but it's spelled Euler. I think it's spelt Euler, pronounced Euler, but oh, I, I think I think Richard's right. It's E U L E R. Yeah, you're right. It is Euler. pronounced Euler. Yeah, but I think I, I called it Euler on the show once and got you know that's nasty what it was. emails. That's got what your hand slapped. There you go. <laughs> but you know, my uh, having been a programmer for a very long time, when we changed languages and platforms over the years, what was my your automatic reaction when you did that? You went and built a CRUD app. 
Mm. You know, like rule step number one, go recreate your, your, right. your albums application in the new platform. Can right. I do this? And, and, and Euler is the same sort of thing, except not thinking app size, but, but, uh, you know, mathematical problem size. How do I solve yep. this particular uh, problem using a different way of thinking about coding? It's an interesting distinction. Uh, and, you know, there's another side of this, which is that function, recognizing functional programming is as much it's technique as language. I've talked to a lot of folks right. lately that are writing very functional C sharp. Well, and this is really a first um, that I've heard of anybody, James, saying that you should learn F sharp to be a better C sharp developer. But you know, if you, you think should. about it, the way they, the the things they like about people like about F sharp is that things are immutable by default. Well, we have that in C sharp too. It's called constants. You know, but it's just a matter of. Uh, nobody thinks about constants as anything but values that should, you know, just just because I don't want to refer to them as real numbers. You know what I'm saying? It's just the way that people treat. In a, in a way, in a way, they are constants, but constants are known at compile time, whereas with F sharp, unless you specify it as mutable explicitly, you can calculate values. You're always calculating values at runtime. Right. You can so create like them at runtime, but it's kind of like read-only values, but not only for constructors. Yeah, I get it. So, so it's, a, it's a different way of thinking. And to get the same effect in C-sharp, you really have to work at it. Uh, mm. You have to create a lot of helper classes that have um, have constructors that have only private setters. And mm. it's doable, but it's more work. Whereas it, you just fall into the pit of success with right. F-sharp. Right. And like there was been, like, I said that it's a good idea to learn F-sharp to become a better C-sharp programmer. Absolutely. People will have, there's been a number of people, I forget who said it originally, but learn a new language every year. I think that's a great idea. What people make the mistake of is they learn the same language every year. <laughs> they'll learn C-sharp, and they'll, oh, I'll learn a new language. I'll learn Java. Yeah. Oh, now I'll go off and learn C++. Now I'll go off and learn, and you're learning the same paradigm over and over. You're learning a different syntax. Right. Yeah. That's not interesting. I was going to think you were going to go from C-sharp to VB-net, and then I can really Art. make fun of you. Yeah, but, no, it's the same thing. VB-net and C-sharp are the same language. Right. <sighs> well, it Art could have been from VB-net to C-sharp. It said no derogatory thing on VB-net. It was just recognizing that's not a different language. Oh, uh, you know, it's interesting to say C-sharp <laughs> to Java is not a different language either. Jeff's sitting well, over laughing. Interesting and no, no, honestly, that's the interesting thing, in my opinion, of .NET 4. The fact that for the first time, we have truly different paradigms on the .NET platform. Right. We have the DLR, so we've got Python and Ruby and the dynamic language breed. Yes. Uh, people are implementing Smalltalk on top of it. Which is crazy. We've got F-sharp as a first-class citizen in the, in the .NET framework, as well as in Visual Studio. So we have a true functional language. The Haskell folks are probably going to shoot me down for that. Uh, and then we've got C Sharp, and we even have JavaScript. And, like All of a sudden, we have this plethora of languages that we can bring into our web applications and our Windows applications. Um, so it's a very, very interesting time. There's not an easy, we're a C Sharp shop, we're going to do C Sharp. Right. There's a lot of examples where um, it's just, it doesn't make sense. There's certain things that are easier to solve by uh, choosing the appropriate language. 
Now, by that same token, the fact that we're building everything against the .NET framework worry or the CLR really worries me because we're ultimately, you know, C- the CLR at its core is an object-oriented construct. They built an extension onto the CLR called the DLR to make Python and Ruby and so forth work. But just Python. It's well, yeah. But f- the functional perspectives, you know, they're they are making the CLR behave functionally, but at what expense? I, I feel like at some point here, maybe two versions down the road, someone's finally going to look say, you know, that's a steering wheel on a horse, right? I mean, it's a nice yeah. steering wheel, but it's still on a horse. Like you've managed to cram functional functional programming into the CLR, but does it actually make sense? Is that the best way to make it work? Well, uh, what do you think? Uh, you know, people are nuts about Ruby, and uh, I know you're a fan too. And I, I, I always try to put this into perspective because, you know, there's it's sort of like a, a perfect storm of having the having you know objects that are typed, but you just don't have to deal with the type, rather than object rather than you know types or, or objects that aren't typed, completely aren't typed, like variants in VB6, for example, or just objects. You know, I, uh, I come from a, a static typing background, so I, I think that Ruby is very interesting. Um, it, it, I wouldn't say I'm a fan of it. I wouldn't say I'm. It's something that I'm looking at. I, I find Ruby and the Ruby community a great source of ideas. Yeah, that, uh, and very enthusiastic. What they're creating, very. Yeah. And, and in terms of looking at, if you look at some of the features that are coming in C Sharp Four, you can see where they came from. Ruby and the dynamic languages. Hmm. So it's an interesting. So looking at where Ruby and dynamic languages are going often can tell you where the other Microsoft languages are going. Uh, I actually find F Sharp's approach of inferring the type. You don't have to specify the type, but it's still strong. It's statically typed language. The compiler infers all the types for you. I find that to be very powerful because it removes yes. a lot of the mental tax of having to worry about what type this is. So long as it's right, you know, which normally, you know, you got to work pretty hard to make it not right. You have to make it hard to make it not right. And if there's a weird, the, the nice thing about F-sharp that I found is if there is a weird edge case where the type ends up not being right, you can specify it explicitly and force it to be a particular type. I'm thinking in particular of assigning a number that's a, a short integer and then wanting to do a calculation with that that makes it a long integer. Um, well, a lot of times, because it's not only variables, but function parameters and return values are all dynamic, are, are all, the type is inferred. Yeah. That actually, it, it's, it's kind of like everything, all the parameters in F-sharp are generics. Yeah. And the generic type is figured out at compile time. Yeah. So a type inferencing engine is phenomenal. It blows C sharp out of the water. And I also, I'd love to see some of that yeah. come into come into C sharp. I, I agree. And I also think that people are a lot more gung ho on dynamic languages because they're relying on tests. You know, when they're when they're we're doing tests first, you can get all of those and find all of those bugs and errors that happen at runtime because 
you know, there was a tight mismatch or something like that. Well, it's, so you're getting the rewards of the plumbing-free language yeah. without the punishments of write-only code. Right. right. Very <laughs> good. Very good. <laughs> you could actually, the test infrastructure means the code stays in control. Yeah, honestly, like the one thing I do really like about dynamic languages is there's sometimes that you just need to wrap that, you need to modify that method. You just need to add a little bit of code to it, but mm. you don't have the source code. And there's just, you end up having to write so much extra goo in your C-sharp yeah. to write proxies and adapters and this, that, and the other thing. In a dynamic language, you can basically just wrap it and yeah. forward on. Like right. you just... You do this frequently in JavaScript. Uh, a lot of the browser frameworks are written um, his, about five years ago. A lot of browser frameworks would deal with inconsistencies between the browsers by saying, "If this is IE, if this is IE version five or whatever, if this is Firefox, then do this. If it's this, this and would do explicit browser detection." What most framework, uh, frameworks are doing, jQuery included is they're now saying, does the browser have these capabilities? If not, do this other thing. Yeah. And, and they're actually enhancing the methods based on capabilities of the browser at runtime. And one could argue that in doing that and making so many you know, modifications and adding on to objects, and you end up with a big mess in terms of where your code is because it's all spread out over the place. But on the other hand, who cares? Because you never have to look at it. Uh, yes, and you're creating less of a mess than all of these if-else branch statements that right. throughout your code doing explicit browser detection. You basically have bootstrapped the browser once to account for idiosyncrasies in how it finds DOM elements or how it finds hashtags or whatever and fixed it in one place in the framework so nobody else has to deal with it. And you can then very easily just call the same method in the same way and be ignorant of the exact browser you're running in. And it should be noted that it works. Yes. Yeah. That's the phenomenal thing. And Microsoft has really gotten behind, getting back to the whole JavaScript jQuery thing, Microsoft has really gotten behind jQuery. They're shipping jQuery with Visual Studio, which yeah, is right. Which is astonishing. That was a shocker. Yeah. yeah, it is a shocker. And now they're publicly contributing to jQuery development. Yeah. Um, like the big one I saw lately, which I th think is fantastic, is uh, Microsoft has a preview of a jQuery globalization plugin. Hmm. Really? So check, yeah. So you can, uh, Scott Guthrie had a really nice write-up on it. It's at shrinkster.com slash 1EBC, one elephant boy cow. <laughs> I don't know what C is. Anyways, <laughs> uh, the, the nice thing about this Open source frameworks have often been very good at being creative. Right. They have not been very good, typically, at supporting other languages because most, the, a lot of programmers, even if English isn't their first language, it's the language we all program in. Yes. So supporting other languages hasn't been first and foremost. No. Microsoft, being a global company, has always been very good. They ship Windows in 50-some-odd languages or something like yeah. that. Uh, the .NET framework supports all the crazy different calendars and... Um, currency formats from around the world. So they're bringing this institutional knowledge and uh, desire for a global reach into jQuery. So, and they're contributing. It's, it's open source. Uh, they're contributing it to the community. They're asking for feedback from the jQuery team. Um, and they're participating in the community process, just like 
if you or anyone else wanted to build a jQuery globalization plugin, Microsoft's doing the same thing. You know what's interesting about this, too, is that I've also found that open source projects as a whole are loaded with sexy features and lacking fundamentals, right? I, one, of the, one of the first times I ran into this, it was uh, Postgres, right? I was able to pass a table as a parameter to a stored procedure, but I couldn't do incremental backup. Hmm. You know, they just don't do those things. So I'm really glad that Microsoft's taken on this uh, globalization and plugin because who else could do it? Who else yeah. would do it? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. They've got a lot of experience with globalization. For most developers, it's like you're you're implementing you're either an English only site or you're a Spanish only site. Most websites are single language, so nobody has that global reach, the desire to provide globalization. And so the and the orchestration of a whole bunch of different contributors all trying to provide this, it would be Difficult. So, really nice to see Microsoft stepping up to the plate and contributing it openly. Um, like at the end of the day, it's going to because jQuery. Really, what Microsoft is going to differentiate itself is jQuery is going to fit in very well with Microsoft web apps. So, it's going to be very easy to use Visual Studio to develop uh, jQuery-based applications using ASP.NET MVC or shall we call it classic ASP.NET. And just some of the some of the fantastic IntelliSense for jQuery that you get in Visual Studio. That's another thing that uh, if you download the uh, VS Doc file for jQuery and just drop it side by side with your existing jQuery files, you all of a sudden get Visual Studio IntelliSense. And these are files that Microsoft is providing. They're augmenting the jQuery files that are being produced by the jQuery team with additional documentation that IntelliSense picks up and provides you with runtime information. So it, it makes coding jQuery even easier than it already is. So I'm really happy to see Microsoft contributing back to the community and participating in the community the way it is. It's cool. Yeah. It's very, it's a very interesting position to be in as well. And I, and I, of course, you wonder what the origins are here. Is this just something they were building anyway? So we might as well submit it to the, to the community because they do do so much stuff in foreign languages, or did they sort of decide, well, we're going to help make a plug-in, let's do something unique? I think a lot of the, the credit has to go to Scott Guthrie. Yeah. yeah the, um, the goo has got a knack, doesn't he? He's kind of brilliant yep. that way. Well, when like before Microsoft decided to go, uh, I'm trying to remember where to, I believe this is publicly known. Um, it's going to be in a I, second. Yeah, let's uh, let's see if I uh, get my uh, MVP status revoked here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, Scott Scott Guthrie at one of these events, uh, MVP event, or, or that we were both at, and uh, asking like, how did this ever happen? And Microsoft was looking into creating a jQuery, like something similar to MS AJAX, but jQuery like framework that would ship with Visual Studio. Right. And Do said, why don't we just ship jQuery? And everybody stopped, and I was like... Long pause. We could, we, we could do that? <laughs> uh, and they they had to go through a lot of legal hurdles and whatnot to make sure everything was kosher. But yes, they, they actually... Uh, he was the kind of front man that kind of pushed it through, and it's like, why build it ourselves when we've got a community that is already 
supporting jQuery. jQuery can be used in any website. Um, and this is one, it allows Microsoft to draw on the resources of a very wide and vibrant community. Yeah. Because the Rails community is contributing to jQuery, uh, the the Dojo community is contributing to jQuery, the Microsoft community is tr- contributing to jQuery. The like, you're drawing from a much the Microsoft developer base is large, but the sphere of all web developers is even larger. So, why don't we participate in that? Yeah, without a doubt, and uh, an interesting place to get to. So what are the things you're working on these days, James? Just changing gears a little bit here, because I know you've always been uh, big on uh, development methodologies. Oh, what else am I working on? Um, recently, I've actually started experimenting uh, with uh, VI and Vim, of all things. VI and school. Vim. VI yes. being uh, VI being the editor? old school Unix editor, yes. Does that really uh, need experimentation? Do, wow. VI. Yes, I, and... I was I saw people using it like JP Voodoo got started using it a, a year or two ago and got really excited about it and I didn't get it. Yeah, um, like me, then, I'm not getting it right now. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't sound logical. Uh, and then I I was uh, pairing with a friend of mine, Mocon, and he was using. He's a big VI user, and he was just flying around the code. I was like, "How are you doing that?" And it's, it was all VI. What VI does is it not only keeps you, your fingers on the home, the, the big thing, everybody, oh, it keeps your fingers on the home row. You can move around in the code using your HJKL keys. That's honestly not a big deal. What makes VI extremely powerful is you can almost dynamically con- compose macros while you're typing. So if you want to delete a line, you type DD. If you want to delete a word, you type DW, DW for word. What if you want to type DW? Then you go to insert mode. So VI works oh. in, in two modes. You're either in, in normal mode, which is browsing around, or you're in insert mode. So it, it takes a bit of time. It probably takes you about a week to kind of wrap your head around switching between modes. But it, most of the time you're spent moving around in the code. Uh, and trying to find things. So it's a really, once you get into trying it, it's amazing how fast you can, there's common things that you have to do. You kind of enter in some new code, and then, oh, now I need to wipe out the rest of the line. That's a single keystroke in, uh, just a single key combination in VI. Hmm. Uh, If you need to uh, just pull some text in, like paste some text, like it's, Rather than doing a lot of cursor movement and holding down shift and all these things, it, you can very quickly say, uh, delete everything up to the next curly brace. Delete everything up to the next open bracket. And it's amazing how fast you can start coding. But you know, the and core concept of- there, the real power is this idea that you're not always in insert mode. That's right. right. Our existing editor, we're always presuming that every keystroke you make is going to be something you want to type into the text. And then that automatically relegates all control keys to key combinations. Control this, alt that, alt control this, and so forth, which naturally makes them harder. So the navigation of the – or else you use the mouse. So navigation in your editor becomes a more laborious process 
than the text editing itself. And you were all you needed was one keystroke to kick in and out of this mode. You know what I want, James? Yes. Foot pedals. <laughs> Seriously. I want foot pedals. I want a pedal on the floor that I can move my foot around like a mouse. Move the mouse around with my foot. I want to be able to like tab and move that's going to give you some flexible ankles. Right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, if he could just make socks, you know, that have the, the controllers right in the toes, then I can learn yeah. to, like, use my big toe for shift, use my pinky toe for tab. This is what I want. Actually, let's let's just go all the way. Toes, buttocks, knees, <laughs> armpits. Let's just wire ourselves up. I got to go put my programming suit on. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> What, sorry, what size programming suit do you wear, Ms. Franklin? Oh, we don't have them in your size. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not going to be able to use your computer today, Mr. Franklin. Sorry. Like, I wouldn't recommend VI for, for your casual computer user. It's way overblown. Uh, it's way too complicated. But for a developer who spends most of their time in text in an editor, to be able to move around quickly in your code to find relevant pieces of code and be able to edit them efficiently goes a long way to a much more pleasant development experience. Well, it's interesting that you choose the the ancient version of Code Rush, essentially. <laughs> you know, it would be interesting is to make a VI implementation that works within Studio, so you still had IntelliSense and all of that goodness. But Isn't that just keystroke macros? Except that macros invariably no, involve no, alt keys. No, hmm. VI is actually a lot more than just macros. Uh, it's got because it's got a regex engine in it. It's hmm. got uh, the way that it interprets a series of keys. How you, depending on the keystrokes that you type, it will interpret them differently. Uh, because because of like you uh, delete a word, change a word. Hmm. There's various things that you can do. Uh, there is actually a Visual Studio plugin for VI. It's called VIEMU. Uh, so if you go to VIEMU.com, huh. someone has actually, uh, there's uh, there's one that works in Studio 2008 and before, and there's a beta of the one for Visual Studio 2010. And it is, it's really, it's quite neat. Well, James, I'm afraid that's going to have to be the last word. We're uh, running out of time, but... Man, so good to talk to you. Always a pleasure. And uh, thanks for your great ideas. Oh, it's been fun. All good right. luck with the rest of the live weekend, and hope you guys can get some sleep. Oh, uh, yeah. Don't worry about that. We'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again, James. All right. Take it easy, guys. All right. Have a great weekend. Excellent. And we'll be back in a few minutes with uh, more for the .NET Rocks Live .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website 
at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a 